Thanks for listening to one of our Sunday messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 9.15 and 10.45 a.m. To find out more about our church or to connect with any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you follow Jesus. Colossians 3, 12-15 So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Welcome this morning, everybody. Good to see you. Welcome to Crossroads Bible Church. We start sermon time kind of the same way each and every time. And when we come here, I expect, and I hope you do, that God's going to do something this morning. I know that whether you're watching online or you're live in the room or you're going to watch it on Tuesday at 10 p.m., God can show up. And so we want to take just a second before we dive into the scriptures that was just read by Eva, and we just want to kind of pray and ask that our hearts might be ready to receive the word of God because we live in a critical culture, and when we come to this space and we seek the character of the God that we worship, we want to make sure that we're ready to receive and be contributors to the conversation of faith, not just critics. And that takes some work for us because our culture around us tells us an entirely different message. So we're just going to pray for a little bit, and I'm going to ask if you're comfortable that, that you say a silent prayer to yourself, asking that the Holy Spirit might work this morning, and I'll ask that you pray for me that my preparation is used by God. So let's pray. God, I'm thankful that we can be here on a Sunday, that we can watch online, that we can show up and see your goodness today. I pray that as we open some text and talk about this passage in Colossians, that you use it to the benefit of our community and so we might see the beauty of Christ. Holy Spirit, I pray that you do a work this morning in our spirit. If you're comfortable, take a couple seconds and just say a quick prayer and ask that the Holy Spirit might work in you and in us today. And I'd ask that you pray for me, that I might do a good job talking through and showing us the character of God and the beauty of Christ this morning. Pray all these things in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. Amen. Colossians 3, starting in verse 12. I remember the first time I taught this passage, actually. And I thought about it a little bit and I was, as I was preparing, I was doing one of my best friend's weddings. I'd known her for probably 10 years. And the way it set up was she asked me to do the part of the wedding where I do the teaching and I say hello to everybody. And then he had this pastor that was informative and, and kind of transformative for him growing up, a much older man. 
a Methodist pastor, and he asked him to do the vow part and the goodbyes. And so I thought that was great. I loved that. I thought it was really cool. They both got somebody that helped form them spiritually in that place. And I get there the night before the wedding, and I've done all my prep by then, because I'm a procrastinator, but I'm not that bad. And... And she looks at me, she said, hey, sir, are you teaching on Colossians 3, 12 through 14? I said, absolutely not. And she said, can you? And I said, we're eight hours away. <laughs> sure, of course, anything for the bride. And uh, so I, I put a message together and I get up there and I deliver it on this passage. And I do my bit and I sit down and I say, now this other reverend's going to come up here and walk you through the vows. And he gets up there and I guess he did not appreciate the way that I unpacked this passage and he proceeds to teach the entire passage that I just taught all over again, right? And his little stick as he went through it, by the way, was, hey, to this groom, you're going to have to take your tux back, but Jesus calls you to put on new clothes. And he says, you got to put on the pants of patience, you know, and the coat of, of, of compassion, like those kind of alliterative old school preaching methods. I was a little bit offended because I thought I did a good job. And if I'm just honest, because this is a safe place, I thought I did a better job than him, right? Here's what you have to know about me. One, I'm competitive, and two, I do not have an inside voice. So as this guy in this wedding is going through all these things that he's going to have to put on, I thoughtfully whispered to my wife, I thought the point of this ceremony was so they could take their clothes off. <laughs> and the first several rows stopped and looked at me, and I was like, oops, <laughs> right? Here's the point is, when I talked through this passage, I was pretty offended at this guy. I was offended that he didn't think I did a good enough job or did it the right way. I was offended that he didn't respect my background and my teaching and what I thought was a strength. I was offended by this pastor at this wedding of my friend that I was asked to do. I was offended. And, and what I want to bring up because of that is sometimes we think that because we go to church, because we follow Jesus together, that offense won't occur within the family of God, you know, whether it be at a wedding or not. I like what some authors talk about. They say, we live in a free society and you have free speech. And, and part of the cost of free speech is the offense that we oftentimes bestow on one another. But it means more in the family of God, because here's the deal. I'm willing to bet that, that sometimes maybe you've been offended by people that call themselves Christians, maybe even hurt. That's a hard place to be. Because sometimes we think if we go back deep down into what we default to, that when we walk in the doors of the church with all these Jesus people, we're going to hold hands, sing kumbaya, and always get along. But the burdens that we have outside of this place and the offenses that we have outside of the church, oftentimes we bring into this building because we're people and we're broken and we all need Jesus. And so what Paul's going to talk about today is what to do when you're offended by the family of God. Because here's a statement and here's a question. One, I'm I'm going to make a statement that I think that all of us in some capacity have been offended or maybe even hurt by Jesus' followers. And that goes against the way we think it should be, and so it hurts more. My question is this, what did you do about it? Because that's what Paul's taking up on with us today. And he starts in verse 12. He says, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and dearly loved like he's done throughout this book before he teaches, he establishes identity. 
before he teaches action, he goes back to an attitude that's based in who these people are. And so he said, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and dearly loved. Here's one thing I know that if you were a Jewish man or woman and you heard those words, the elect of God, holy and dearly loved, your mind went to Deuteronomy 7. Deuteronomy 7, when God called his people out of Egypt, he ran them through the wilderness and he reestablished them and said, before you go into the promised land, let me tell you who you are. And he says this in verse 6 of Deuteronomy 7, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. You got to understand the purpose of Israel in the Old Testament, which transfers to the purpose of the church in the New Testament, is to be a different people. That's what it means to be holy, to be set apart and distinguishable from the context and the people around you for the purposes of showing how good God is. And so if you follow the Old Testament narrative in a lot of the New Testament tension, you see them trip up a lot over this thing called the law because the Jewish people thought this is what made them better than every other people because God picked them. He gave them laws, about 600 of them. A lot of thou shalt and thou shalt nots. And the whole purpose of the law was so that they might show people the goodness of God. That's why God picked them in the first place. That's what was supposed to happen. He said, you're going to go into a culture. And let me tell you what you're not going to be. You're not going to be the culture you came from in Egypt, and you're not going to be the culture you're going to. You are my people. And what we see is that literally... Your actions as the people of God isn't informed by the context around you, but it's informed by the God who defined you. And so he starts before he gets into us as a faith family and a community, and he says, you are a holy people. I define who you are, and that makes you distinctly different in terms of how you relate to one another. Never forget that. And he says, you're not only holy or set apart or different. He said that you are loved. In verse 7 of Deuteronomy, he says, the Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you are more numerous, for you are the fewest of all the people. And then we get this beautiful definition of kind of what love is. It's not developed because you're the most attractive and the strongest and the tallest and you teach the best. Love is bestowed because God had decided to commit to this people. There's a special word in the Hebrew in the Old Testament that, that's used to describe the love of God for his people. It's used 250 times. And in the English versions, it's often translated either love or faithfulness because it's the crashing together of those two terms. This idea that God chose to love and that love is made known and seen through his unrelenting faithfulness, not based on what they give God, but based on the character of God. That's why... In the Old Testament, when God says to live certain ways, he often, his, his reason why is because I'm God. His reason why is because I'm God. And, and so I love what Scott McKnight says about love. He defines love as a rugged, conventional, covenantal commitment to another person to be with that one and for that one as both journey into Christ-likeness. He starts off by saying, we are now a new faith family. We are the people of God. And in the context of Colossians 3, saying this is what you were, this is what you are. Verses 3, 1 through 4, he talks about our new identity in Jesus. And he's moving us away from a life that's centered on the vices that we see in verses 6 and in verses 8. And he's saying, this is the virtues of who you're going to be. You're going to be not as much about the me and way more about the we as we point to the mission of Jesus. 
He's calling them into something profoundly more beautiful. And he's saying, this is what the church family is. Never forget that. You are set apart to do something distinctly different, to show people the beauty of the God that you follow and you're loved. Never forget that either. And it's not dependent on how well you do at that job yesterday, today, or tomorrow. Since God has decided to join with us and be faithful. It's a beautiful reminder that I need. It's the basis of what grace is and does. And also it sets the tone for how I relate to people that honestly tick me off in the faith family when I am hurt. I love what Michael Horton says. He says, a church is not a group of friends you've picked. It's a group of brothers and sisters God has picked for you. And why I think it's a really important reminder before we launch into this section on some characteristics is because we live in a consumer culture where if you don't like the latte temperature, you go to the next Starbucks, you know? We live in a consumer culture where if you don't like pick your poison here, you pick up and move. And that, I think, is antithetical to God's definition of love. I know it's antithetical to how he loves me. And here's what we're not saying. We're not saying there's not good reasons to leave churches that, that go against the teachings of Jesus. What we're saying is that maybe we leave churches for too many reasons that aren't actual reasons. There's a, some friends of mine I met with in the last couple months during the COVID crazy They used to be in my youth group, and now they're grown up, and they have kids that are older than my kids. I deal with that really differently. I'm I'm wrestling with the aging thing, right? And they go to church in the area, and they haven't necessarily been thrilled with some of the ways that their church has reacted in the last couple months, because here's the deal. None of us know what we're doing, and we're just trying to figure it out, love people well, and show grace where we can. And they met with me and said, hey, what do you think we should do? You know, uh, we know you and you have a church now. And I said, yeah, don't leave your church. I said, don't leave your church right now. I said, the reasons that we see that's going on right now is not reason enough. It's not theological and it's not philosophical for you to leave. I said, stick around because when we commit, that's when we grow. I think that's what Paul's point is here. I urge you, all of you, as set apart people and loved people to keep going in this because you have to remember that in this current context in Colossae, there wasn't another church down the road. If you wanted to follow Jesus with other people, you had one place to do it. So you had no shot but to work it out, Right? We have to remember that. And that calls me into an even greater commitment when I'm offended by the people of God because like we established, if you haven't been offended, you will be. And if you haven't been offended and you've been here a long time, then maybe you're the one offending everybody else. But that's another sermon. All right? And you're still holy and dearly loved, all of that. He's saying, you are set apart. He's saying, you are a faith family. Might you understand the commitment that comes with that because it's modeled after the commitment we find in the love of God for you. And so he says, because of that, here's some individual qualities I want you guys to to share together. And he starts, clothe yourself with a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. So you're going to find offense in the church, and here's what you do when you're offended. Clothe yourself with a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. First of all, I love that it starts not with go fix that person that offended you, but we begin as we follow Jesus from within everybody, right? You look internally and say, how do you change you that you might better represent who Jesus is? is because you're going to be offended and you're going to even be hurt. And when that happens, he doesn't say reach out. He says, start with the internal and might that might that drive the external relationship. One author said the place to begin with any tension or conflict 
dynamic is within a group that is about others and not one's self. Your attitude, not your neighbor's actions. I think it's really important because when somebody offends me, the first thing I want to do is change them, you know? And Jesus says, maybe look inside first. And here's what that looks like. He's going to list five virtues here. And it corresponds with the five uh, uh, different kind of things that he said not to do in the above passage. He's going to say to go with that group, here's another group. And let me just say what I said back then. This isn't a totality of a group. This isn't all the things we're supposed to be. He's trying to make a point about our disposition towards others and our disposition towards ourselves. So he's going to say, put on these things, compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. So let's take a couple of these really quickly and talk through them. So we have the first couple, kindness and compassion. And those kind of are lumped together in some way because they have the same common theme. That word compassion is actually one of my favorite words in the New Testament Greek. It's two words forced together. And those two words are literally kind of mercy and then bowels, right? And what that literally means is that you have mercy for somebody that comes from deep inside of you that you can't explain that motivates you to action. A really great example is in, I think it's Luke chapter, I want to say one, uh, Mark, Mark chapter one. There's a man with leprosy. If you don't know much about leprosy in the Old Testament, it was horrible. Leprosy in the Old Testament, you, you were literally kicked out of camp. You were banned from your people. You got kicked out of your community. And it was a community-centric culture. You lost your identity. And all you became was this, other, this leprosy man. So there's a group of people with leprosy. <clears throat> One of them runs up to Jesus, gets on his hands and knees, and says, anything you could do, if you could find it within you to heal me, please, and it says in that space that Jesus was moved to compassion, literally like deep within his bowels, he found mercy because he felt so deeply for this man. And just as a small caveat, in that moment, Jesus didn't say, well, it's probably just that you have it because you shouldn't have touched X, Y, and Z with leprosy. When we talk about this kind of compassion, it's not necessarily centered around justice, it's centered around grace here. And as a church community, when we deal with others that offend us or that hurt us, we need to remember that oftentimes compassion looks like us revolving our lives around the pain of others, trying to alleviate it over the justice that we seek, that we think, that we need and or deserve. I like what one commentator said about it. He said, compassion is getting down on your hands and knees and doing what you can to restore dignity to a person whose life has been broken by sin. The same word is used in the parable of the good Samaritan. When you have the Samaritan walking by and this Jewish guy laying half dead on the road. The Samaritan doesn't say, your ancestors killed my ancestors, you probably deserved it. He doesn't say, well, you probably shouldn't have been walking that late at night on the road. He doesn't say any of those things. He just says, my heart breaks for you first and foremost. So Paul is setting up a new faith community, the, the radical we. And he says, first of all, put on these things, compassion and kindness. And kindness, that word there is, is rooted in the word that we have for grace. So it just means it's undeserved. Like that kind of kindness is undeserved. So he goes on. He said, so that's how you see others. And then he shifts to, how do you see yourself? And so he says, humility and gentleness and patience. I love what C.S. Lewis says about humility, right? He says, humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. A couple different ways you can define this term, but really what the author means here is the kind of humility that renounces your rights or status so that you might be able to serve others. This is what we see in Philippians 2, 5 through 7. 
It says Jesus literally stepped out of heaven and lowered himself to be one of us so that he might serve us. He relinquished relinquished his rights and status as God and got mocked for 33 years by the same people he created in the first place. He said, I'm not going to let you see me as God because it's not going to serve you the best. I'm going to walk with you. I'm going to love you well. And ultimately, I am going to die for you because that's what it looks like to love you well right here and right now. Paul says, this should be the guiding ethic for your community about one another. I give up my rights so that you might be served. And in a COVID culture, I wish we had more of that mentality in everything we did. Whether it's our view on religion or the Supreme Court or distancing or mass, pick your poison here. Our lens has to be how do we serve others and relinquish our rights to do so because it's important. Because that's what it means to love one another. That's what Jesus did for us. He's saying, think of how you see others, how you feel for others, and and how you see yourself. And then he kind of keeps going, and he says, two more, gentleness and patience. And those are just the outflowing of humility. You might treat others. That word gentleness is often translated meekness. It means that we sacrifice what we can do for the people of God. I love what one writer said about meekness. It's the disciplined display of power for the purpose of others. Jesus did this all the time. He could have shown people at any time who he was. He said, this is not your best good, so I'll wait for 33 years. He said, I'm going to put on meekness. It doesn't mean I'm intentionally weak. It means that I'm going to use my power in a disciplined way so that you might be served. Paul's saying, when you come into conflict with one another, remember who you are, remember who others are, and, and remember how Jesus treated you. And might that impact how you treat one another? He gives this list of things this interpersonal gut check time of how am I responding in this moment of pain or crisis or just sheer anger because I've been offended by somebody. But he doesn't stop there because he has the interpersonal list and then he moves on to the more than interpersonal, the, the, the list that helps us relationally, right? So he says, this is what's going to happen next because we've all been here. I think I learned the fruit of the spirit song when I was seven years old. Still not great at living those out. I think that we are a culture sometimes of lists and legalism. And what Paul's going to do here is say, so here's the attitude you're going to have towards yourself. And let me be specific on how that impacts your day-to-day with one another. So he's going to take it a step farther and say, don't just be these things. This is how these things really impact those moments of conflict you have. And he says this in the next verse in 13, bearing with one another and forgiving one another if someone happens to have a complaint against anyone else. I like, I like where he starts here. If you notice where the emphasis is in the text, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. If someone happens to have a complaint against anyone else, he's speaking to the ones that were offended, not the ones that are offending you. I had a friend of mine a couple of years ago came up to me on a Sunday. I've known him for years. He's older and wiser than me. And I said, this moment of clarity. I don't even know how I got there, but I'm just going to say it's the Holy Spirit. He said, Charlie, I'm having this <clears throat> really tough time with somebody at my work. And I said, I'm sorry. And he said, I just cannot stand them. And I said, that happens sometimes, not at Crossroads, other places. And uh, he said, I don't think I understand. Everything he does annoys me. He shows up late, he eats too loud, he eats, you know, he microwaves fish in the office kitchen. Who does that, right? He does all these things that are absolutely taboo. I can't stand this man. And I looked at my friend and I said, sounds like you have a you problem. 
And he said, no, I don't think you understand how annoying this guy is. I said, it sounds like you have a you problem, you know? And I kept like goodwill hunting him, repeating that phrase again and again and again. And then he left and wrote me a couple days later and said, I've been thinking about that. And that is just so good. And this is what the text is telling us. When somebody offends you, it says, when one another is causing you to take offense, when it says bearing with one another, the burdens of one another here, it literally means when they're annoying you or offending you. He says, when that happens, he says, look inside and let it go. He says, look inside and start with you first. And so he's saying what he said at the beginning that we begin from within. But then he takes it a step farther. He doesn't just stop with bear with one another because that implies that there's some annoyances. That implies that I don't like what this guy wears or somebody's wearing a hat in church, how dare he? That doesn't imply um, that you've, you've hurt me on a relational level and you're actually at fault. So he doesn't just say bear with one another when there's nothing that's costing you, when you haven't been wronged. He says forgive one another. He takes it a step farther and says don't just bear with but forgive, which means when somebody's hurt you, sinned against you, when they're absolutely wrong, forgive them. It's a step farther than bearing with one another, and that's difficult. It's really hard to do because pain is involved. And we want to, in that moment, we want to make sure that we dole out justice, but it seems like the text here implies to me that Paul's saying justice isn't necessarily always ours to dole out. Love is, compassion is, kindness is, patience is, bearing with one another is, and forgiveness is. I love what Mirsav Wolf, theologian, says about forgiveness. He says, the difference between justice and forgiveness, to be just is to condemn the fault, and because of the fault, to condemn the doer as well. To forgive is to condemn the fault, but spare the doer. That's what the forgiving God does. That's why we say at CBC, authentic community is messy. Because there are times I have to put up with you, and there are times I have to forgive you. It takes a work in us through the power of the Holy Spirit to bring in those two moments unity out of conflict. It's difficult to do. But here's what it says next, and I love this. It says, just as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you forgive others. So he moves it. And he said, you've heard this list of five. And then you're supposed to bear with one another, have forbearance, and, and, and then have forgiveness in the really tough parts. But he said, in those moments, you're supposed to do it because that's what Jesus did for you. This is our day to day. So if we're offended by one another, if we're hurt by somebody because sin exists in our community because we're not perfect, he says, remember Jesus. This is what changes our tomorrow with a conversation that's hard that I have to have after this. And what we see here is he's saying that Jesus is literally the, the pattern and the possibility for forgiveness in our community. There's a, a story in Matthew 18, and he's talking with Peter. Matthew 18 is often the, the, the chapter you go to if you're dealing with conflict in the church. It's a chapter on church discipline. A very misquoted phrase is, you know, when two or more are gathered, there all be. Okay, just, just for free, it doesn't mean that God's not there if you're praying alone in your shower, okay, because he's, you know, omniscient, he's, he's everywhere, he's om, omnipresent. What that means there is that conflict is difficult, so Jesus is reassuring his people that even in the toughest of situations where you're in conflict with the people you love the most, so the pain is the deepest, I am there with you. And so after that section, one of his disciples, Peter, looks at him, and he says, okay, I get forgiveness is a big deal. Tell me how many times. He says, should I, should I forgive seven times, which is kind of typical for that day and age when they taught. 
And Jesus says, no, you're supposed to forgive 70 times seven, right? And here's what I know. Jesus didn't teach a whole lot of math classes with his disciples. It wasn't about the number. So some type A's right now are like, okay, he's got one more and then I cannot, right? <laughs> what Jesus is doing there is saying there is no end to the forgiveness you give because there is no end to the forgiveness given through Jesus. He's saying here is the pattern by which you forgive one another. There's a Puritan that lived about 300 years ago named Thomas Watson. He said, when we strive against all thoughts of vengeance, of revenge, when we will not do our enemies mischief, but wish well to them, when we grieve at their calamities, when we pray for them, when we seek reconciliation with them and show ourselves ready on all occasions to relieve them, that is what forgiveness looks like. When you're for somebody that's even pained you, that's what Jesus did. So he says, that's your pattern all the time. And then here's the deal. I know and you know that's really difficult to do. C.S. Lewis said that forgiveness is a loving idea until you have something to forgive. <laughs> and I think that's true. That's a lovely idea for you, right? But you don't know how badly this hurts me. I love going back to Wolf, what he says about it. Whatever the reason when forgiveness happens, it's always a miracle of grace. The obstacles in its way are at times immense. And so what, what Paul appeals to in our text is that in moments when you've been offended and at moments when even you've been hurt by the actions of others within the faith family, where it's not supposed to happen, forbear and forgive because your disposition towards others is compassion, towards yourself is humility, and because that's what Jesus did for you. Because if we don't think that our sin grieved the heart of Jesus, we haven't read the Bible. If we don't think our sin pained the heart of God, we haven't read the scriptures because God loves us and wants what's best for us. And anytime we go against what is best for us, the one that loves us the most, it hurts them. Anybody that has kids said amen, you know? And so Paul says that Jesus is the pattern and the possibility for your forgiveness. We say it often, but forgiven people are a forgiving people. It's what we need to remember in the middle of those times that we've been hurt and we've been offended. And so when he builds up this radical we, he's saying, like he said at the beginning, that, that the new radical we, this faith family we have in Christ, is not defined by the context of your world, but by the character of Christ that we have both experienced and extend to one another. That's your new governing ethic as a family. No longer is it eye for an eye. No longer is it he hit me, I'm going to hit him back. It's this radical idea of forgiveness that brings us together, even at the expense of pain to someone. So he calls us into this new ethic. And he's saying, do all these things. But here's what he ends with. This is what I love. He says, if you do all these things and you don't have the right motive behind it, then you will fall flat on your face. So he ends by saying, after this huge, hard command to live with forbearance and forgiveness for one another based on how you see others and how you see yourself, he says, remember Jesus in all of it. And by the way, here's your motivation. It was the same motivation of God that we read when he said, you are set apart, holy and dearly loved. He ends his point by saying, and to all these virtues, put on love, which is the perfect bond. 
That idea of bond literally means it holds all these things together. What that means is even if we're kind and we're compassionate and we're patient and, and we are gentle with one another, if we're all those things and it's not motivated by love, I don't think that's a sustainable model for community unity. What he's saying is that's what keeps it going perfectly. So go back to Matthew 18. I think that Peter's saying, how much am I required to do by law? Because that was his motivation, not how much do I get to do by love? There's a fundamental difference in the body of Christ. We don't do what is required. We do what is radical. He's calling us into a new radical way to live. And in some ways, it goes back to that definition that Scott McKnight had for love. Love is a rugged, covenantal commitment to another person to be with that one and for that one as both journey into Christ-likeness. What he's calling us to do in the middle of difficult situations when somebody teaches the text I just taught and does it poorly, what he's calling us to do in that moment is to live radically for others because we've been loved by God and we show that love to others. That's one thing that's hard to explain or define but motivates action and reveals the beauty of Jesus is radical love. There's a New York Times author whom I like. His name is David Brooks. I'm going to read what he wrote in an article last year about happiness and joy and love and beauty. He said, my friend Catherine observed that when her first daughter was born, she realized that she loved her daughter more than evolution required. I love that phrase because it speaks to what is distinctly human, our complex and infinite caring for one another, There are some things we do because biology demands it. There are some things we do to pay rent. But material drives don't explain the magic of our friendships and the way our soul sings when we watch loved ones glow. You can't create the magic intentionally. But when you're living at that deep level of affection, it sometimes just combusts within you. What he's talking about is the beauty of living in love that motivates compassion, that lends itself towards forbearance and forgiveness even in the moments that don't call for it, we've been hurt and offended. It's the radical we of the family of faith in Jesus Christ. Saying this is your new normal. Today we're going to end by taking communion. Because when you think about the extent to which Jesus loved you, to the extent to which Christ forbeared with us and forgave us, to the extent with which Christ used his love to motivate his action to be for us when we didn't deserve it. When you think about that, you have to go back to the cross. Because like we said in Philippians, he was in heaven and came down here and we didn't appreciate it. (laughs) He talked about the kingdom of God and people tried to kill him. He gathered together people and talked about the ethic of love that was more than what was required, but in this new way that was radical. And he said, you're going to do it as you're united together because when people see the unity that comes through the body of Christ that that overcomes divisions and lives in this connectedness to one another, they see the beauty of God. And so he got down with his disciples and he said, this is how much I love you. I'm going to go and I'm going to get my body broken and my blood shed because that's what it looks like to love and serve you. So we're going to take communion today because as we take these things, we remember the compassion of Christ, the kindness of Christ, the humility of Christ, the gentleness of Christ, the patience of Christ, the forbearance of Christ, the forgiveness of Christ. And it was all motivated by the love of Christ. 
he said, might you live into that way as well? Even in the hard parts when you're offended. Even in the hard parts when you've been wronged. And so on that night, Jesus took some bread. He held it up in front of his disciples. He said, this is my body. It's broken for you. Every time you eat this, after this, remember this new radical we that I'm creating. Then he took a glass of wine. He held it up. He said, this is my blood that I'm about to shed for you because I love you. Drink and remember. Let me pray. God, I'm thankful for what you called us into for the beauty of the community of Christ that that overlooks offenses and focuses on what ties us together. This radical ethic of forbearance and forgiveness motivated by the love of Jesus. Might we live it out so well that people see that as followers of Jesus, we do more, far more than just what's required. But we live in a radically different way because of who we are in you. As we sing some songs and worship God, may we remember this is why you're worthy of our worship, because of what you've done for us, the identity you've given us, and all the joys that we have in you as we live it out with one another. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.